You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, it's Heard Tell Show. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Andrew Donaldson on this March the 31st. A Thursday, say that three times fast. I'm not going to try to. I'm too much of a hillbilly for that. But we're thrilled to have you with us. Lots of stories to turn down the noise of the news cycle on. Today, we're going to go overseas. Some perspective on Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the, our German friends, Der Spiegel, they have a panel of Russian experts on two key questions that aren't getting covered much in Western media. We'll delve into that. Uh, remember the Amber Geiger verdict, the, the police officer that shot Botham Jean in his own apartment. Uh, her appeal has come up. We will cover that story quickly. A great story to end the program. We always end on a little bit of a lighter note. Sounds like something right out of a Pixar movie. A flamingo that has been on the run for almost 20 years has been seen in Texas. And sounds like a road trip movie to me. We'll talk about the escaped flamingo that has taken up residence in the Lone Star State. The famous uh, Davy Crockett quote, y'all can go to hell and I'm going to Texas. Apparently this flamingo feels the exact same way. Uh, but we'll cover that a little bit later in the show. Great guest today, Jack Salmon, uh, a economist, going to talk inflation, going to talk monetary policy, physical policy, how Congress has dropped the ball how inflation is not something that started 10 minutes ago. It built up. Who's really to blame for all that? Jack Salmon, another one of our great Young Voices contributor on the program today as a guest. But first, let's start with Congress. You know what I don't think super highly of Congress. I call them Congress critters for a reason. We call their machinations kabuki failure theater for a reason. There's a lot of nonsense that goes in Congress. A lot of what's wrong with our country, a lot of what's wrong with our politics, a lot of what's wrong with just about everything when it comes to culture and politics in America can be traced to Congress. Judicial system ain't working right. Congress ain't working right. The executive branch has got too much power. Congress ain't working right. The economy's a mess. The budgeting's a mess. Policy's a mess. Congress, Congress, Congress. A lot of the blame around here goes to Congress. And a lot of that falls on us because Congress is a representation of us. They're our representatives. And we tolerate a lot of hot mess nonsense. Well, the hot mess meter in Congress doesn't get any higher than it does with one Madison Cawthorn. Now, you may have heard his name. He is a representative from the western part of North Carolina. He has been trouble from day one. Uh, when he first showed up on the scene, we thought, well, this might be a nice little story because he is in a wheelchair from an accident that he had many years prior. Well, this might be a nice little story of somebody overcoming and becoming the youngest congressperson in history and serving right now. He's been anything but. He's an utter embarrassment. He has no business being in Congress. He lies constantly. He's lied about his backstory. He's even lied about the accident that caused him to be in that wheelchair. He lies and lies and lies some more. And then he 
And then he orders up some more lies with a side of lies. This is just who this man is. That's not my opinion. We have it documented now. He lies constantly. Well, he's been in the news this week uh, because he made comments uh, about, well, let me just read it to you from the Washington Post so I don't get myself in trouble here. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, uh, another duplicitous weasel, but I digress, said Wednesday after meeting with Representative Madison Cawthorn that the freshman lawmaker was not telling the truth when he made claims about a, quote, this is in quotes, an orgy invitation and alleged drug use among unnamed members of Congress in comments lately which he made during a podcast interview last week, had outraged some of his fellow congressional Republicans. By the way, it's nice to see what they're finally outraged about, all the other nonsense that I just mentioned, but accused them of orgies and cocaine use, all of a sudden they get upset. Duly noted, back to the piece, leading to Wednesday's meeting at the Capitol with McCarthy and other House GOP leaders. This is unacceptable, McCarthy told reporters Wednesday after meeting with Cawthorn. There's no evidence to this. McCarthy added that Cawthorn said, quote, changes... What he tells and did not tell the truth, describing his actions as not becoming of a congressman. Cawthorn was seen leaving McCarthy's office Wednesday morning after a meeting that lasted about half an hour. House Minority Whip Steve Scalise also attended the meeting. And there's a lot of different things that can happen, but I just told him he's lost my trust. He's going to have to earn it back, McCarthy told reporters. I mean, he's got a lot of members very upset. McCarthy's spokesman confirmed that the leader's remarks, spokespeople for Scalise and Cawthorn, did not respond immediately to requests for comment. Uh, basically what happened was Cawthorn was on this podcast and he, Cawthorn responded to talk about the quote, sexual perversion that goes on in Washington, <laughs> another topic for another day and suggested that he had been invited to an orgy by an unnamed lawmaker. Here's the quote from Cawthorn. I mean, being kind of a young guy in Washington where the average age is probably 60 or 70, you know, I look at all these people, a lot of them I looked up to through my life, always paid attention to politics, guys that, you know, then all of a sudden you get an invitation like, oh, hey, yeah, we're going to have this kind of a sexual get together at our home. You should come. And I'm like, what? What did you ask me to come to? And then you realize they're asking you to come to an orgy. That's the first quote. The second quote is this or the fact that, you know, there's some people that are leading onto the movement or trying to remove addiction in our country. And then you watch them do a key bump of cocaine right in front of you. And that's like, this is wild. He's now admitted those are direct quotes from Madison Cawthorn. He's now admitted to Kevin McCarthy that he basically exaggerated and made all this up. He's saying, well, now maybe a staffer told him this. Look, like we opened the segment, he lies and lies and lies some more. By the way, knowing what a key bump is, if you don't know what it is, go look it up, folks. Uh, that's pretty telling to me. The Guinness Book of World Records for projection was held by some Russian folks that put together a giant outdoor movie screen. I think uh, Congressman Cawthorn is doing some projected from his own well-documented partying styles here, but he lies. But let's put the blame where it belongs here. He should have never been elected in the office. And Kevin McCarthy, being the spineless weasel that he is, should have long ago disciplined him. And by the way, quite a few other members of his caucus, looking at you, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosser, who likes to go to white power rallies. These people don't belong in Congress. If Kevin McCarthy wanted to be a leader, he would sanction them severely. They've done this before with Stephen King in Iowa, like we've talked about on this program. He should sanction them. He should strip them of assignments. He can also do the ultimate thing. And I think it's long past time we start doing this in Congress. It's time to start calling the herd. I don't care that voters put them in office. If they're unfit, get your caucus in line, call a vote, and let's start expelling some folks. 
it's time we put the hammer down. Now, Kevin McCarthy ain't going to do that because he still thinks he's going to be Speaker of the House come first of the year. Steve Scalise is sitting there making machinations against him, and he doesn't know it yet. We'll talk about that some other time. But it's long past time for real leaders in Congress to quit worrying about whether your party is best or not and put people that don't belong in Congress out of Congress. Get your caucus together, put it in the ethics committee or one of the other committees that has the power, do an investigation, call a vote, and expel these people. Now, I know social media gets mad at that, but it takes two-thirds of the entire Congress to expel somebody. That's a very, very high bar in what is going to be a very divided Congress for the foreseeable future. They're not going to willy-nilly expel people for just saying something controversial. It's going to be a high bar, but no matter how high you put that bar, Madison Cawthorn deserves it. Call your caucus, expel him, along with a couple other people while you're at it, and let's start making a difference in how Congress behaves themselves. Because unless they're fearful for their seat of power, they're never going to be accountable to anybody. And they're never going to be accountable to anybody if they're not accountable to us. More Hertel right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Uh, let's get a little bit different perspective on the goings on of the war in Ukraine and Russia and Vladimir Putin's war crimes that he is perpetuating onto the Ukrainian people. And as we discussed on the show before, the rest of the world, because things like food shortages, grain shortages, fuel shortages, natural gas shortages, these are going to affect way more than just Ukraine. And of course, the West and the rest of the world is having to realign because of this conflict. A lot of moving parts. But let's get a little perspective on two key questions uh, that are not getting discussed, especially in Western media quite enough. We go back over to Germany, Der Spiegel. Uh, that is the main publication of note in that country. This is the English language version. They did a long and wide ranging interview with a panel of experts on Russia. I encourage you to read the whole thing. It is at spiegel.de, the international version. It is in English. It's easy to read. Don't worry about that part of it. But there's two questions they pose. The first question is this. And remember, this is an interview, so I'm going to condense how I read this a little bit for the sake of clarity, but it's laid out as an interview. Uh, there's people asked this, said, how much information about the war in Ukraine do normal people in Russia have access to? Great question. I've been asking that myself. Uh, this individual named Giesen said this. It is harder for me to say what people are seeing now, but in the first couple of weeks, the people weren't seeing images of the carnage and the state weren't calling it a war. It was a special military operation, a special operation to cease hostilities and bring peace. The most interesting part for me was the tone and pacing of the news as if nothing was out of the ordinary about what was happening on Russian TV. The newscast was five minutes long at the top of the hour. They have talk shows where they go at it, but they have been around for a very long time and they have always been at a fever pitch. Then there would be this long broadcast on all the measures the government is taking to repair the Russian economy in the face of unwarranted anti-Russian sanctions. It's completely surreal. It's an entirely different world, a world in which the big war does not exist. Uh, Khrushchevia, uh, another one of the panels, said this to that question. Information is available through Telegram. There are still YouTube channels available, the blogs and also the VPNs that now everybody uses gets around the censorship. But these are city people. Russia, let's remember, encompasses 11 time zones, and many people have less access to the global community. And we are now in a post-truth environment where people just choose what they want to believe. You don't want to believe that Russia is invading or attacking Ukraine. You don't have to believe it. 
and you can just go about defending it. Uh, Fisher, another one of the experts, said this, yet there are still people in Russia who are against the war and cannot leave. These people now found themselves in double isolation. Not only are they isolated, marginalized, and increasingly threatened physically in Russia, they are now also isolated from their main reference point, which is and always has been the West. Der Spiegel then asked this question. This is an important one. How will this war change the country? Will Russia become a fascist country? Gessen said this to this question. It has been my thesis for a number of years that Russia has restored totalitarianism. There was a great econ- there was a great economy of terror before the big invasion, right? I mean, there's no other name for using chemical weapons against the regime's opponents. There was terror, but it was almost homeopathic. It was extremely directed. When random protesters were prosecuted, it would always be one or two out of tens of thousands. That's changed now. The change is that we are moving into a non-economical regime of terror. It's becoming much, much more difficult to keep track of political persecutions. There are too many arrests. There are too many political prisoners to keep track of. Just yesterday, we got news of a really horrible case of a young man who was held for two weeks. Nobody could even find him, and he finally committed suicide. Fisher, the other member of the panel, said this. I find myself using the words dictatorship and terror quite regularly, which is really, really frightening. Let's not forget that Russia is now no longer a member of the Council of Europe. And Dmitry Medvedev, during the first week of the war, said, well, there's no longer a member. We can just reconsider the moratorium on the death penalty. Gessen comes back and said Russia never ratified Article 6 of the European Convention, which Russia just pulled out of, by the way. Uh, So basically only put a pause on the death penalty and Putin executes people willy nilly anyway. So revoking the pause, willy-nilly, I added there, by the way. No, So revoking the pause is an administrative act. Fisher came back and said this, with sanctions on the way the war is developing, it will have a huge cost for Russia. My feeling is that for the first time in 20 years of Putin's rule, there could be a tipping point, that we are moving closer to a point where eternal change is inevitable because the pressure is becoming too great. Khrushchevia said this, even without Putin, listen to this, I would not disregard the continuation of the FSBC system of government, that is the uh, intelligence arm running the country. They are not going to give up power. I have been told by Howard up that they were very upset that this war happened, and yet how quickly they moved in with their own agenda to elimination of civil society, the independent media, and so on. It is a great deal of wishful thinking that there will be a deputinization, and we will move forward to a more open world. We've covered it on this show, folks. These folks are telling you ahead of time, as bad as Putin is, whatever comes next, probably going to be worse. Hope for the best, but prepare for the worst, because that's probably what we're going to get out of the regimes that run Russia. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we've been talking about it a lot because we need to, because it's a pressing issue and there's a lot of noise about it. We're going to try to turn down the noise today, get to some good information you can actually use to discern one of the hot topics of the day right now, the economy and inflation. We got another one of our great Young Voices contributors, Jack Salmon. Uh, he's written all over. He's done a lot of policy work at a lot of places you would recognize. Sir, how are you this morning? Appreciate your time. I'm very well. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Uh, I always enjoy when we have people on with economic things because I'm not great at this stuff. Like I read it. I try to keep up on it, but I'm really not great on it. I didn't like math in school. This is too much math for me. Work work with me here and explain it to me like I'm five, because everybody understands now that we've got an inflation issue. The question seems to be, though, 
where did it come from? Because everybody wants to jump to the blame part of the inflation issue, which is natural because they want to do the political side. But explain this to me slowly, though. Where did this particular inflation crisis come from? Was it government policy? Was it spending? Where did this current crisis come from? Because we understand this didn't happen five minutes ago. This is something that has built up over years, right? That's correct. There's really multiple factors that play into the current surge in inflation that we're seeing. But some factors are being underplayed and others, there are others that are being used as, ex- as excuses to cover government policies and missed mandates followed by the Fed. So to answer this question, I'd start from the history of the Federal Reserve and its, and its mandates on controlling inflation. So going back to 1977, the Federal Reserve has had two mandates. It's called the dual mandate. One is to maximize employment to ensure that the unemployment rate is as low as possible. And the other mandate, the one that we're concerned about here today, is the keeping the price level low and stable. In other words, keeping inflation under control. Since 2012, the Fed has defined low and stable as 2% inflation using their PCE, which is their preferred inflation metric. We, we have two measures of inflation. We have CPI, which is the one we often hear about, the Consumer Price Index, and the PCE, which is the Fed's preferred measure. It tends to be a little lower on average, and it tends to be smooth, so it's less volatile, less ups and downs over time. So the Fed has had this 2% mandate, and from about 1990 until 2020, really, when the pandemic started, inflation, PC inflation, did average about 2%. So in that regard, the mandate was fairly successful. However, starting in 2020, at a symposium in Jackson Hole, the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell decided to change this inflation mandate. Instead of targeting 2% inflation over time, he wanted to play catch up because the inflation rate in, in the few years prior had been below 2%. So the idea was to run inflation hot, run inflation above 2% for a temporary period of time. He didn't specify what temporary period of time was or how high moderate inflation would be above 2%. But since that, since that period, since 2020, that's when really everything has changed. However, I, I, I note up front that this wasn't necessarily a, a monetary policy fault. The inflation that we're seeing today is driven by fiscal policy. In other words, Congress overspending. Um, we've, we've seen about $5 trillion of not spending, but additional spending on top of what government already spends over the last two years in fiscal stimulus. Now, this is a real-time experiment in what people refer to as modern monetary policy. It's really a, a helicopter drop of cash. The Federal Reserve had to monetize all of this new money. So the printing press was run hot. Um, it, they only stopped buying treasury debt two weeks ago. So that gives you an idea of the scale of the problem with a massive increase in the money supply. This was the first time in US history where we've had a recession where incomes went up. That, that really gives you some idea of the scale of, of government spending and fiscal stimulus. Yeah, because a lot of the metrics that we normally, even people that aren't real up on economics, they understand things like the unemployment rate, like low unemployment supposed to be good, high unemployment's bad. And then they hear things about you know the policies you just mentioned. This stuff has sounded incongruent. We've been talking on this show a lot. Like It just doesn't make sense. How do you have a labor shortage, but you have low unemployment? How do we have all this you know, income and wealth and the economy 
for the average person is kind of having bumps. But overall, if you look at the numbers, the economy is really, really good in some sectors. A lot of this stuff doesn't make sense. Is a lot of that incongruity just coming from the fact that there's just so much money getting pumped into it that it just makes kind of the standard, I don't know if you call them metrics or milestones or whatever term you want to use, is just the way we normally measure and talk about this stuff getting skewed because it's just so much money and so much debt and so much spending that it's just unprecedented. Yes. Um, to, to get some idea of the scale of increase in the money supply, the the they often use metric is called the M2. It's the base money supply. It grew by 40% through 2020, 2021. Uh, that means 40% of all the, do- all the dollars circulating through the economy were created in the, in the past two years. That just gives you some idea of the scale. So inflation broadly measured is, 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 the, is simply defined as uh, too much money chasing too few goods. Now, we often hear about the too few goods aspect. That's the supply chain crisis, um, supply bottlenecks, shortages of, of, of microchips. But we, we seldom hear politicians or even economists, for that matter, talking about the, the, the demand side, and that is the, the money supply and the excess demand driven by huge increases in, in, in income during the past couple of years, dri- driven by this fiscal stimulus government spending surge that we've seen. And we had kind of a unique thing in history where we had a temporary supply side inflation problem because things like COVID, uh, of course, COVID worked in waves across the global supply chain. So it, it was kind of a unique event in history where you had that happen. So we did have supply side uh, issues with inflation, but a lot of people were concerned is like, hey, we've got all this fiscal policy on top of this. This, this stuff's going to run into each other. Did the one lead to the other? Did the one just happen to happen while the other was going? Were they connected? Were they not connected? Try to break that down for us a little bit because people, they, they just hear inflation. They don't understand there's different kinds of inflation. How much were they actually connected or did they just kind of run parallel to each other? There was definitely a strong connection between the two. I'd start by, by making the point that the economic contraction that we saw in the spring of 2020, driven by the pandemic, by the government shutdowns and business closures. This was a supply contraction. Everything shut down. The government treated it as a conventional a recession. In other words, they treated it as if there was a sudden drop in demand. That wasn't the case. People weren't not buying things. They just couldn't buy things. And so the government reacted as they would to a conventional recession by sending everyone money under the assumption that there was a slump in demand. And so the service sector is completely shut down, yet everybody's pockets are being filled with, with federal, federal uh, uh, taxpayer money. And so when things opened up, naturally the supply side couldn't keep up with this huge excess of demand, this huge excess of money that's now flowing into the economy. In actual fact, these supply chains have been exceeding their capacity in recent months. In fact, I would say throughout 2021, Supply chains have been have been very efficient in processing goods uh, throughout the economy. They just can't keep up with this huge surge in demand. There are some some issues with supply chains in certain areas um, that, that that sort of predate this this surge in demand. But these are really long term structural issues. Um, there are pot- government policies in place that keep the supply chain really quite outdated compared to compared to the sort of imports and export systems that we have in, in Europe and in, and in Asian economies. And that's down to things like, like the Jones Act, uh, the Dredge Act, and the fact that 
essentially all of our port and warehouse um, labor markets are entirely unionized and they have strict contracts that limit hours. Um, they, they oppose automation at essentially every turn. So we have these, these, these cranes that have been in place for, for decades that are fully, fully manual. Um, that, that it can only be operate, operated by workers and only during maybe, maybe 20, 30 hours a week, which is, which is the hours that those people are contracted to work on, compared to European and Asian ports where, where the cranes are fully automated and they can process twice as many imported goods compared to, compared to US ports. Talking to Jack Salmon, uh, the part of this too, is it over, this may be an oversimplification, but just so we can get our minds around it, we're talking about how the supply chain can affect inflation. Monetary p- policy has a supply chain too, and it's not you know shipping stuff from China to sell at Walmart. There's a policy process to how monetary po- process goes from theory to money actually going into the system. Is the supply chain for the monetary policy in a healthy place right now, or is it broken too? And we really need to review how that monetary policy goes from the thought and theory into the actual putting money in circulation end. That's that's a very big question for a monetary economist. I'm, I'm, <laughs> and give two examples, please. <laughs> I'm, I'm not really entirely sure about the, the supply dynamics of monetary policy. I can mostly speak to the fiscal the fiscal dynamics and the crossover between fiscal policy and inflation. Great. Then explain that one to me because that's a big word, crossover dynamics. That is, is that is that as violent as it sounds? Because it sounds like a collage, a collision or a collapse or two things running into each other, or is it more dynamic where it actually flows into each other? Well, one of the big big risks right now is that it is the word you use is collision. Um, it's this sort of crossover between monetary and fiscal policy that, that we we really shouldn't want to see and, and we hope we don't see but the risks of this are growing um, as the public debt which is now the same size as the entire u.s economy continues to grow there is a risk of what we call in economics fiscal dominance and it's it's an, a phenomenon whereby the federal reserve can no longer abide by its its mandate one of which is to keep inflation low and steady because they're preoccupied with keeping the interests of Congress as their priority, namely to keep interest payments on the debt as low as possible. One of the reasons they're so reluctant to raise interest rates right now in dealing with this current surge in inflation is because it will increase the interest rates the government pays on its debt. Now, we had this issue in the 1980s during the the end of the great inflation period, but at that time, the debt to GDP was about 25%. Today, we're talking about 100%. So the cost of hiking rates, the way we did in the 80s, would be fourfold more painful. So there's a strong reluctance from the Federal Reserve to pursue the the policy, the hiking interest rates necessary to quell the current inflation because they're captured by by these congressional interests. 
Yeah, I'm talking to Jack Salmon. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about it. We're going to get a little bit more into the policy side of this where he's more comfortable anyway. Uh, we're going to talk about Congress's role in this. Uh, we're going to get into some of the policy that has caused this inflation, making sure we get the blame where it goes, because if we don't know where the blame goes, we don't know where the fix needs to go. So more with Jack Salmon, more fiscal policy, more on inflation. Another great Young Voices contributor on Hairtel right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell. We're getting into the deep end on inflation and monetary policy with our friend Jack Salmon, another great Young Voices contributor. Okay, we're talking fiscal policy in the United States of America. We know who has the power of the purse. All fiscal roads at some point go through Congress. A lot of this mess, look, we it's it's basically a joke now. We talk about that Congress is dysfunctional. Congress doesn't even do proper budgeting anymore. There's just no way that wasn't going to spill out into fiscal policy at some point. Are we at that point of like everybody knew this was going to cause a train wreck at some point? Here be the train wreck, or is that overstating it? Actually, most people are still, most people within the political circles are, are still very much in denial that this was a fiscally driven di- dynamic. In fact, it's been quite surprising to see that those who actually warned about the, the risks of inflation with massive government stimulus were the old Obama economists, the, the, the Keynesian economists. We saw Larry Summers um, and, and increasingly more recently, Jason Furman warning about the risks back in the spring of 2021 when policymakers were debating the, the, the minute details of the American Rescue Plan. Because it was, it was at that moment that fiscal policy really started to accelerate inflation and, and, and t- take off inflation expectations. At the time, many economists were talking about closing the output gap. The output gap is where we hope to see the level of GDP moving forward based, based on previous trends and where current GDP actually is. So it, it shows you how much we're undershooting our potential. At the time when policymakers were debating the American Rescue Plan, the, the estimated output gap was about $380 billion. So they were making the case that we had to spend that much in order to stimulate the economy to close the output gap. Now, the output gap, they said, was $380 billion. They ended up spending $1.9 trillion to close the output gap. Now, that was more than an overshoot. Um, So we now see nominal GDP massively outpacing potential GDP, which is a a sure sign of, of, of inflation and also a sign of future inflation. So I don't think we're out of the woods yet. We probably have about another year of of heightened levels of inflation to go. Um, And that's just from the spending under the American Rescue Plan. Also, also I I should add, um, as of two weeks ago, I I run the numbers and there are still about $700 billion of that $1.9 trillion of stimulus that are yet to run through the system. They haven't yet been dispersed. So we're, we're still seeing that stimulus run through the economy at this point. Yeah, it's an amazing thing of the American government that we can't even spend money correctly sometimes. It's just mind-boggling. Uh, let's, let's just delve into that for just a second, though, because the pushback on that from people in Congress would be was, well, we had an emergency. We had to spend this money. Okay, that's fine. That's all well and good. We understand that. But the thing about it is economics is a fiscal science. The math don't care whether it was a crisis or not. At some point, that spending still has to be accounted for. 
And it also didn't happen in a vacuum. It came on the tail end of years and years and years of more massive spending. I, I, I get a little tired of the rhetoric where they're like, well, this is an emergency. It's like, okay, it's in a normal household. If, if you have an emergency and you don't have the money, you still don't have the money and you can only borrow so much. They just don't seem to want to put all the pieces together when they discuss it with the American people and understand they don't want to because it makes them look really, really bad. But you as an economist, when you view it, you put those things together. You put together that, yes, it's a crisis, but it's still a massive amount of money. And it's still a massive amount of money on top of the last decade or two decades or however far you want to go back. All that massive amount of money. This stuff all goes together in a sequence to paint the full picture. And Congress just doesn't ever seem to want to deal with the full picture, do they? No, that's correct. And we entered this crisis with trillion dollar deficits. We had a decade to get our budget balanced, to get it under control, to limit our spending levels. But political interests prevailed. And so it was never addressed. Um, you should always fix your roof while the rain is shining. Um, we, we've been making this case for years. It would have been far easier to enter this this crisis and, and pursue this, this level of spending, although I, it shouldn't have been as high as it was. Um, if we had our fiscal house in order, other countries had spent years lowering their debt burdens. And so they entered this crisis more smoothly. They didn't have to spend as much. And now they're, they're exiting the crisis with, with, with a much better economic and budgetary condition. Yes, we had to spend in 2020 um, to, to, to deal with the crisis. But as I said earlier, this was a supply shock. It, it, it wasn't so much a conventional, it, it wasn't a normal recession. This wasn't a, a, a business cycle um, recession. This, this was a supply shock driven by pandemic and forced business closures. And so, yes, there was scope for the government to provide insurance, but not stimulus checks. Um, then there may have been scope for the government to support, to support those who were, who were left temporarily unemployed but not by paying them excessively more than they were making before they, before they were made unemployed, which, which was the case. And for a, a very prolonged period of time, there was huge, there were huge amounts of unemployment checks that were collected that we're now seeing were, were fraudulent That's the, in, in the cost of tens or even hundreds of billions of dollars. So yes, spending was needed. As much as we spent, I, I don't believe so. Probably the wrong kind of spending in many areas. But the question of whether the American Rescue Plan in, in March 2021, by which point unemployment was, was, was extremely low, um, labor markets were beginning to become very tight, wages were accelerating, things were looking healthy, um, we, 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 vaccines had been, had been rolled out and the economy was, was, was very much on the road to recovery. Why we spent another $1.9 trillion is, is beyond me. It was completely unnecessary. Is there any way, and here's an impossible question, but I'm going to ask it to you anyway, because that's, we just nobody will talk about this part of it. We say things like get our fiscal house in order. We say things like we need to have more accountability in government. We have all these stories about all that stimulus money you just talked about. Some of it, they can't even figure out where it went. Some of it hasn't even been spent yet. Uh, a lot of the states ran into the 2020 stimulus packages. A lot of them had to spend it, hurry up and spend it at the end of this last new year because it was getting ready. They'd sat on it for two years. Um, we hear all these terms though, but again, you work on the fiscal side of this. How do we get good fiscal policy at this point? Because 
Congress is obviously not really interested in it. The executive doesn't really have any grounds to override Congress on most of these issues without with a few exceptions and probably wouldn't be a good fiscal policy to do it that way anyway. What, what do we do? And this is just kind of a frustrated cry of, you know, what do we do? Because I don't see a path to any kind of good physical policy coming anytime soon. Do you? So I can answer the question of what we should do, but I, I am, I am less optimistic on, on the question of will they do it. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm quite well versed in uh, public choice economics, and so I, I, I understand the dynamics that work with policymakers. Their interests are almost entirely in being re-elected, and so they will, they will cater to the interests of their electorate, and if that means promising goodies and never raising the revenues, then they will continue to do so. So it's really an issue of incentives. What really drives our fiscal deficits long-term and our, our, our growth in, in the debt trajectory, um, looking past recent stimulus spending, it, it's really rooted in legislation passed in about seven, a seven-year period between 1965 and 1972 with the creation of government healthcare programs, Medicare, Medicaid, and uh, changes made to the social security system with, where, where payments were massively expanded. About four-fifths of our long-term budget deficits are driven by policies passed during that seven-year period. So failure to address those issues, failure to reform those programs is, 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 is really the only option, uh, sorry, Failure to address those those issues is is really shooting ourselves in the foot. We can we can limit spending on on other areas, whether it's education or or defense, but it's really just going to scratch the tip of the iceberg because, as I say, eighty percent of of the deficit spending long term comes from comes from those those three programs: Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And so we have to limit the spending growth in those areas. That's one option is on the spending side. Another option is to raise revenues. It's, it's far less popular. I'm not an advocate of raising taxes because of the economic harm that comes from raising taxes. I don't think we should be hurting our growth prospects because having dynamic economic growth is another way to, to sort of grow ourselves out, out of this debt burden. So we need to limit spending on government entitlement programs primarily Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. We need to broaden the base, the tax base, without raising rates so that we can increase revenues. And we need, we, we really need economic reforms, deregulation to increase our growth rate so that we can actually grow our way out of some of these burdens. Yeah, and good luck getting a politician to do the Hobson's choice of picking between taking grandma's benefits away and taxing everybody else. Uh, right. that's, that's, that's going to be an ugly reality at some point uh, for somebody. It's just when the, the musical chairs stop. Let me ask you one more thing, Jack Salmon, joining us before we go. Uh, the rhetoric out of the White House now, we've seen it a couple times back at the beginning of March. They trotted this out, and again, a couple days ago, they trotted it out again. They're pitching this line that uh, the Biden administration and the Democratic Party, which, of course, has the trifecta right now. they got all three, both houses of Congress and the executive. So... <clears throat> They're trotting out this line that under Democratic leadership, since they've taken over, uh, they have cut the deficit uh, by more than half. This is some fun with numbers because you pointed it out on Twitter. I pointed it out on this show. 
well, yeah, we started this conversation talking about the massive, unprecedented levels of spending. So compared to basically anything else, yes, it's less now. Uh, those are fun with numbers and they don't really react to, uh, they don't really reflect reality when they say things like they've cut the deficit in half since they've took charge, does it? Exactly. It's, it's, it's very disingenuine. Um, cutting, the, cutting the deficit in half after they blew up spending by $5 trillion really isn't that big a challenge. All you had to do was sit on his hands. What we should be doing is comparing current deficits to prior years before the pandemic to, as, uh, as a moral, uh, as a more um, typical baseline. So we should be looking at 2018, 2019 deficits and comparing current deficits to those years. Uh, deficits at that time were about 900 billion, close to a trillion dollars. This year, the, 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 the financial year deficit is expected to come in about $1.8 trillion. So if anything, deficits are about double where they were before the pandemic. The argument that deficits have been cut in half is, is, is just, is, it's a fallacy. Jack Salmon joining us. Outstanding information. Whole lot of explaining things that needed to be explained, especially to me, because I don't understand them as well as do. I feel smarter already, my friend. Until we have you back on again, let folks know where they can follow you, your social media, where you're writing, and what you're working on. Sure. The best place to, to find me is probably my bio page on the Young Voices website. And I believe my Twitter handle is also on there if you want to follow me on Twitter. Yep. And his Twitter handle is right there on the screen if you're watching on YouTube or the Facebook channel uh, on that lower third graphic. Make sure you're following him. Uh, Jack Salmon, appreciate it. Great information. Very much looking forward to having you on again because I got a feeling it's an election year here in America. That means it's the economy, stupid. We're going to definitely need you back to continue explaining these things to us. Thank you so much for the time, sir. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Yes, sir. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Let's update a story here. Remember Amber Geiger? Uh, that's Botham Jean's uh, murderer. Uh, the fact that she was an in-uniform but off-duty police officer when she murdered Botham Jean just makes it all the worst. Uh, killed him in his own apartment. She claimed that she mistakenly thought she was in her apartment and that he was an intruder. Uh, the police department in Dallas then proceeded to smear Mr. Botham, along with the prosecutors about, well, he was high, he was smoking pot, none of that mattered. This woman went into his home while he was sitting in it and murdered him, and she got convicted of it, and she should have been. Well, her appeals, as she has a right to do, uh, her appeal has been heard, and it has been rejected, uh, KETK out of Dallas, Texas. A court upheld the conviction and sentencing of Amber Geiger. An ex-police, a Dallas police officer convicted of murdering a man in his apartment after she said she mistook him for an intruder. The Dallas Morning News reported that the Court of Criminal Appeals refused to hear her petition to, quote, review a lower court's decision to uphold her 2019 conviction and sentence. The 31-year-old ex-police officer was off duty but still in uniform when she shot Gene in his apartment, which was directly above hers. Geiger testified that she mistook his apartment for her own and thought the 26-year-old accountant was an intruder. There was a lot of details of this case, if you go back and read them, that made no sense. Nothing about her story made any sense. Uh, the way that she would get into somebody else's apartment and the way this complex was laid out, 
it had the kind of safety locked doors that you just couldn't walk into somebody's apartment. Nothing about this story made sense and nothing about what she said changed the basics facts of this case. She walked into the wrong apartment and she murdered a man sitting in his own home. Pot use has nothing to do with it. Nothing has anything to do with it. One of the most sacred rights we should have in America or anywhere else in the world for that matter is that you should be safe in your own home from the government coming in and accidentally killing you or on purpose killing you. Now, we're not going to get into the mind of Amber Geiger, whether this was an accident or she did it on purpose. Doesn't matter. Even though she was off duty, she was a uniformed extension of the government and she murdered somebody in their own home. That should be something that carries a severe penalty. We can support the police. They have a hard job to do, but that means weeding out people that have no business being police. It means holding police accountable. Thankfully, Amber Geiger was. She was held accountable, and now her appeal has been heard and rejected, and she will finish out her prison sentence. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Well, this one here is right out of a Pixar movie uh, from the New York Times. Flamingo number 492, you think we could get it a name, is still on the run. 17 years later, a fisherman sighting in March confirmed that a flamingo that fled a Kansas zoo in 2005 has defied the odds to live in a Pixar-worthy life in the wilds of Texas on a wild, windy day in Wichita, Kansas in 2005. Flamingo number 492, we really need a better name than that, folks. Let's get on that. Made its escape. The workers at Sedgwick County Zoo had forgotten to clip the African flamingo's wings, a painless bit of maintenance that keeps the beloved birds from flying away in the dangerous world outside. The zoo was unable to retrieve the bird before it flew away from Kansas, facing long odds of survival in a region of the country where no other flamingos and few environments suited for its needs. David Foreman, a machinist and fishing guide in Edna, Texas, did not know any of this when he and his friend set out on a boat in Port Lavaca on March 10th of this year. His customers often claim to see flamingos, mistaking them for the smaller but also pink Rosetta spoonbills that are common in the Gulf Coast. He patiently explains that no, there are no such things as flamingos in the wild in Texas. He's told hundreds of people this. But on this day, he couldn't believe his eyes. There was a tall, elegant bird standing on one leg, as flamingos often do. He zoomed in his phone's camera as far as it would go, searching for proof of what seemed unbelievable. My brain was telling me, no, you're not looking at a flamingo, but my eyes were telling me that's what it is. There's no mistaking it, said Mr. Foreman, who grew up in a bird sanctuary. He would have updated his spiel, he thought. It's almost like nature's way of putting me in my place, Mr. Foreman said. Mr. Knows Everything thinks there's no flamingos in Texas. Have a look at this. Wildlife officials in Texas say it was surely number 492. It was so named because one of its legs had worn a tag with that number since its arrival at the zoo from Tanzania way back in 2003. Uh, the officials have since named the bird. Come on now. Y'all got to be more creative than this. Pink Floyd. Oh, well, I guess it's better than 492. Back to the New York Times. The boaters were too far away to see the tag, but Julian Hagen Social media specialist with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department said 492 was spotted in the same area and during the same time of year it's been spotted for the past years. We have no reason to believe that it's any other flamingo. It serves as confirmation that 492, Pink Floyd, estimated to be about 20 years old, is still preserving 
persevering despite striking out on his own. It's a journey that would fit snugly into a Pixar movie script. It was definitely a moment to remember, he said, of Flamingo in South Texas. Wow, who would have thought that? Good for him. I'm sure Disney and Pixar will be all over this and we'll have a movie forthwith. Hopefully they give the character a better name than 492 or the utterly uncreative Pink Floyd. Come on, folks. We can do better than that. Fun story to end the day on. Thank you so much for watching Her Tell, for listening to Her Tell, whether you're on the YouTube channel, checking us out, or on any other podcasting platform. Sure appreciate you being here. Make sure you're subscribing. Uh, it's the most important thing you can do for two reasons. One is it makes sure that you don't miss anything we're doing with Herd Tell every weekday episode, the twice on Sunday recap show, the long form deep dive podcast. There's over 36 of those now. You get all of it and you'll get it automatically and you get it for free. It only costs you a click. So go ahead and click that subscribe button for us. We'd sure appreciate it. Second, lets us know you're out there. It lets us keep track of what you are and are not listening. Let's us adjust the program a little bit and know what it is that you want as we endeavor to turn down the noise of the news cycle. So until we see you again next time on Herd Tell, we hope you and yours, wherever you are, across the street or around the world, are well. We hope you're well fed. And we'll see you again tomorrow, another Friday edition, as we wrap up another week of Herd Tell. See you then. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Oh,